Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose an exciting new book in the study of religion, and we chat with the author. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Amanala Dasandi about his great new book, The Crisis of Islamic Masculinities, which was published with Bloomsbury in 2014. What gets to count as Islam? In the current political climate, this question is being repeated in a variety of contexts. The tapestry, or for this conversation I should say the tartan, of various Islamic identities is revealed in an investigation of gender. In this great new book, Dasandi tackles the construction of Muslim manhood in several interpretive traditions. These forms of masculinity, both ideal and reviled, are taken across a wide spectrum of thought, from Islamist perspectives to those challenging patriarchy. Many of the discussions revolve around similar themes, most importantly family, marriage, sexuality, and veiling. Other constructions of masculinity challenge heteronormativity within Muslim identities. The Quran is central to many of the interpretations discussed in the book, but Dasandi demonstrates that here, too, we are not presented with a singular and clear ideal of masculinity. Quranic descriptions of male prophets, including Adam, Joseph, Muhammad, and Jesus, each complicate a simple narrative about Muslim manhood. In our conversation, we discuss hermeneutical strategies, feminist approaches to the Quran, notions of love and sexual boundaries, the Mughal poet, poet Mirza Ghalib, gender fluidity, Sufism in South Asia, prophethood, and same-sex love. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Amanda Sandi. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome again to New Books in Religion. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Aman Allah Dasandi about his great new book, The Crisis of Islamic Masculinities, and is just about to come out in paperback, so all of you can pick up a nice, inexpensive copy. Hello, Aman. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm very glad to talk to you. Um, this is a really great book. Um, as someone who is in the field of Islamic studies, I, I know that there is a lot of talk about uh, feminist approaches to Islam and ideas of uh, gender related to uh, women, but there's you're really at the forefront of this idea of masculinities. Um, and I think this book does a really good job of kind of laying out some of the important questions we need to ask, um, how this might um, fit into these larger conversations about gender. Uh, and I really think anyone interested in uh, gender studies and religious studies will really benefit from it. So thank you uh, for, for writing this, and thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Before we get into the content, uh, uh, as is tradition with the channel, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of religion, how you got interested in Islamic studies, uh, perhaps uh, people or events along the way that have been influential in, in how you came to where you are now. So um, I'm trying to think where I should start this uh, this journey. 
Um, I was born and raised in Glasgow in Scotland, um, where religion is a compulsory subject uh, through an act of law um, in Scottish primary and secondary schools. And I was always intrigued by religion. Um, at, at, at a point in my life, I went to um, a, a Protestant school and then I went to a Catholic school. And I learned all sorts of different dimensions to religion. And at high school, I was very uh, intrigued by religion. And uh, what, what really intrigued me was um, thinking critically about religion and um, uh, asking the difficult questions, um, which I did um, at school, at, at high school and, and also at home. So I, I was always um, seen as a bit of a, a troublemaker when it came to asking critical questions about religion. But, but, but I, I, I kept asking them. And so I, after high school, I um, went to France where I studied Arabic for one year. And I came back to Glasgow and I wanted to become a primary school teacher. Um, but then I, I had a, 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 um, a, an influential mentor um, who is a Methodist minister and he said to me, well, why don't you go and study religion? So I went to study religious studies um, at the University of Stirling, which is at the very heart of Scotland. And of course, the, the, no jokes about Braveheart here. Um, <laughs> and I, st- I did a degree in uh, religious studies with the diploma in education. And so I qualified as a secondary school teacher of religious education. Throughout my four and a half years at Stirling, I studied um, quite a, a, a diverse uh, range of uh, religious studies topics um, from Buddhism to political Islam to women in African traditional religions to possession theory in the Sudan. Um, and I qualified as a secondary school teacher. Um, and at that time, I was probably, um, if not the only uh, Muslim teaching religious education in in secondary schools in Scotland, and I and I enjoyed it very much. I helped to shape um, much of the curriculum and um, that's still in place in Scottish secondary schools. I consulted to the Scottish uh, government. Um, I also took part in a lot of in service for secondary school teachers. Um, and I and I, I enjoyed um, the the real critical inquiry, and I think um, I I I felt very much at home doing that in a in a in a purely academic setting, where I was not expected to defend Islam or um, or apologise for Islam, and and it, and it and it really helped me to think about where I wanted to go in terms of the study of Islam. And so after teaching for a while, I decided that I was going to continue with my studies. And um, I decided to do a master, uh, um, a, a master uh, uh, in literature um, in Islamic and Jerusalem studies um, at the University of Aberdeen in Dundee. Um, which was which was really quite um, eye opening for me because it was more advanced postgraduate study. Um, I was always intrigued by Jerusalem and thinking about Jerusalem as an inclusive uh, city and the connection between the, the three faiths. And but very quickly, I, I realised that um, it was a minefield 
that I was uh, expected to say particular things being Muslim. Um, and I was really, uh, again, I was intrigued only to to pursue at the very core an academic critical study um, into whatever I was looking at. So after my master's, I decided that I was going to um, teach for a little while. Um, I was also, uh, I was, I became a lead researcher for uh, quite a, a substantial grant, which came from the Ford Foundation. Um, and I, I, I uh, led a study on philanthropy for social justice amongst British Muslims um, at a time where it was uh, the aftermath of 9-11. And so I learned a lot uh, at that time um, of, of, of doing this balancing act of trying to trying to be honest and, and, and critical to what I was looking at, but still being, you know, um, aware of the sense and sensibilities that, that Muslims have. Um, after the study, I... Uh, went on uh, to I finished that project, um, which was actually uh, headed uh, from Emory with Abdullahi and Naim. Um, and after finishing that 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 British Muslim project, I I conducted my PhD research at the University of Glasgow, my city. I was I was very excited about doing this in my home city, um, and I I did my PhD in. Uh, in the study of um, Islamic masculinities. So that was really, really my journey. And in between that, I, I did, um, uh, you know, I, I did continue to, to help uh, and, and teach in secondary schools, religious education. After I finished my PhD, I, I went on the job market and the, the, uh, the job that I got was at Ithaca College in upstate New York. And I moved from, from Scotland to, Ithaca and I taught there for one year and then um, from there um, I moved to the University of Miami in a visiting position and then I, I, I'm on the tenure track at the moment um, but I'm now, I have now accepted a, a, a position back in Europe in Ireland, in Ireland's first secular department uh, of religions as senior lecturer in contemporary Islam. So that's really my, my journey. Um, also in between that, I, I, I studied Arabic in, in Syria and also in Jordan. Well, congratulations, Amon. That's really great news about your, your new position. Thank you. Um, now, the... The whole field of Islamic masculinities, this uh, is something that you are very much at the forefront of, but uh, I, I can't imagine that you, you saw yourself in that way when, you were, when this project was uh, emerging. So could you talk a little bit about how this, uh, how this began to be thought about as a book? Um, and perhaps, can you talk a little bit about perhaps any ways you had to rethink your dissertation into to making it a book? So I think I, I began thinking uh, very closely on issues of masculinity when I was taking courses um, at the undergraduate level on, on uh, women in traditional African religions. 
Um, I was um, I was studying with Mary Keller, who who is at the University of Wyoming at the moment, um, and I also uh, worked closely during my masters with Anne Sophie Rold, who I think uh, uh, correct me on this. I, uh, someone will, I'm sure. Uh, I think her book was was quite a pioneering book when it came to uh, women in the Western experience. And I remember she gave a public lecture in Dundee, um, and as after on, on women in 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 the West or in Europe, and I sat there thinking to myself that you know why is it that that we continually talk about women where actually we should be talking about men? And I stood up and said this, and it, and it probably all came out really. Uh, jumbled up, but she looked at me and she said, "You should, you know, pursue this." <laughs> and I and I looked her, at her and I thought, you know what? I think that's what I'm going to do. And from there, I just, I mean, I I, I remember the early days of my PhD, and I had I really had this idea of of working on masculinity, but I had no no real kind of you know uh, core thesis point. And I was chatting and talking to a lot of people. Um, I remember um, at one of the AARs, I, I met um, Keisha Ali. Somebody introduced me to her and said, you know, oh, Aman's going to work. Aman's working on a PhD on Islam and masculinity. And I thought to myself, oh, no, she's going to ask me what exactly are you looking at? And I'm so early on doing all this reading. And I really don't know what to say to somebody who I look up to. And I remember walking with Keisha and saying to her, yeah, and just kind of like early days. And she must have thought, you're right, okay, he has no idea what he's doing. And it's really quite interesting that she kind of, you know, has been a, a real mentor um, at, at some level in helping me think closely about what I wanted to do. But, you know, my work is really an exploration. I really, it's a, it's, it's a book that's an open book. I really want people, um, academics, non-academics, anyone to you know, uh, open up the deliberation and the discussion on uh, what it means to be Muslim and male and what are the implications of that. And that is really uh, at the very core of of what I'm trying to do. I'm not a theologian. Um, I work purely and primarily as a, a scholar of religion, a critical scholar of religion. I am not invested uh at all uh, at a scholarly level um, to stating what the best form of Islamic masculinity is. I feel that that's, uh, that's a project that other people are, are undertaking and should undertake, and that's not my duty and, and role as an academic. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested and intrigued by the discussion on, on Islamic masculinities. Yeah, and you do a great job. You really open up the conversation, uh, especially for people that might not be thinking about this already. Um, and so you do this through a number of case case studies, I guess we can call them, uh, which we'll get into in a moment. But I was hoping you could first uh, talk a little bit about this idea of uh, masculinity being constructed. Uh, basically, uh, give, give us a, a gender studies 101 for, for the uninitiated. And, and also, much of what the book does is uh, look at how masculinity uh, is constructed. And, and at the same time, uh, we simultaneously construct femininity. So can you talk a little bit about this, this idea of, of gender being constructed and, and then how you perhaps uh, took that to the study of Islam? 
Well, um, how, how is how is gender constructed? I mean, how how is is your masculinity constructed? How is my masculinity constructed? It is constructed through a series of interactions with the other, and I know that sounds very technical, and people are very confused because the the, ter- the use of the term "other" is used in many different ways when it comes to I don't know. People think about Islam and other faiths, or or, but at a at a purely uh, level of subjectivity and being, we are what we are based on a series of interactions that we have with everything that surrounds us. So from an early age, it's about the interaction that we've had with our parents uh, uh, or or those who have looked after you, um, uh, your siblings, your teachers, you know, interaction with other males and other females. So I think that, that, that by and large would be at the very crux of how gender is is socially uh, constructed now the interesting addition when it comes to islamic masculinities is that you have this additional construction of god and when you include god in in, in the debate it has the potential to uh, create all sorts of other power dynamics and so you you take this and basically apply it uh, to various studies. And in the first two chapters, um, you uh, at least I read them as kind of almost diametrically opposed. Um, so in the first the first chapter, you look at this figure Maududi. So could you could you give us a little bit of background of of who Maududi is, what what perhaps he's all about, what kind of things shape his intellectual context. Um, Give us an idea of who, who this is. So, uh, as we know, Maududi was one of the, uh, so to speak, founding fathers of uh, Pakistan, um, was, um, was also a, a religious leader, um, um, and he, he constructed a very particular form of masculinity uh, through uh, the, way, the way in which he understood um, uh, uh, other men and women, how he understood God in a very particular way, um, how he felt charged to uphold uh, a very particular form of Islam, um, also uh, which came about through uh, the end of the uh, the British Raj and the emergence of Pakistan as an Islamic state. So, um, uh, mascul- I argue in my book that masculinity, Islamic masculinity, is constructed um, by using uh, particular foils. And uh, the foil that uh, Maududi uh, uses is, is, is quite uh, centrally focused on the West and the way in which he sees the West and he feels that Islam needs uh, needs to be upheld in a particular way. Now, Maududi had very particular ideas of what it meant to be a Muslim woman and what it meant to be a Muslim man. He he wrote um, a, a book uh, uh, titled Parda, uh, uh, the Veil, in which he talks about the role of Muslim women, why Muslim women. Um, are are different from women in the West, 
And he does this uh, quite fantastically uh, through uh, using all sorts of uh, different uh, ideas and, and hermeneutics that emerge from, from the Quran. But his, 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 he really upheld the central notion of family, a very heterosexual family, um, uh, and very rigid and strong gender roles uh, on women as the homemaker and men as the breadwinner. Now, at a political level, uh, this was quite superb because he, his aim, um, uh, by and large, I think what he was also continuing uh, in the same line as Islamic uh, legal scholars that we see in the medieval period, was that he wanted to create stability, social stability and in society and deviant masculinity and femininity disrupt social stability. So he was very clear and very powerful in trying to uphold a very particular form that he felt was going to rule the day. And in fact, it did. So that was, that was the, 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 the charge uh, that Maududi placed I think we still see the effects of that because what Maududi was saying, the very rigid forms of masculinity and femininity also were being said by the likes of anybody else who wanted to, uh, who wanted to and who wants to uphold something essentially Islamic um, at the state level and at the social level because that rigidity gave some power to that political formula. Now, you, you follow that up uh, almost at the opposite end of the spectrum, and uh, you focus on what you call femini- feminist Muslim thinkers. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about what that means to be a, a, a feminist Muslim. But uh, in your discussion, they're talking about many of the same ideals or themes, uh, marriage, family, veiling, uh, that Maududi was using to construct his ideas about masculinity and femininity. Um, where does this feminist perspective kind of challenge his, his uh, ideals? Well, the, uh, uh, the, the Maududi-esque model of uh, masculinity and femininity has been critiqued by Muslim feminists and some uh, Muslim women who don't want to be categorized as feminists. And uh, to, to, to look more closely at that debate, you would have to read the work of uh, Asma Barlas, who, who does not like to be categorized as a, as a feminist because of the connotations involved in, in our general ideas of feminism, uh, which is constructed primarily through a, a Western model. And so that is challenged. But the, but the Muslim feminists um, that, I, that I explore in, this, in, in the second chapter are, are critiquing what Maududi is saying. Um, um, they are doing that through uh, two means. One is through their own lives. Um, and secondly, uh, by, by going back to the, the, core, the core text, which is the Quran, and they are looking at ways in which uh, they can uh, they they can challenge what what Maududi was was saying uh, because what Ma- because the effects 
of what Maududi uh, was saying and, and upheld uh, create, create, can create, has the potential to create a lot of injustice. And a lot of injustice, uh, particularly uh, against uh, Muslim women. So Muslim women are are trying to uh, find a way of challenging this this the, the kind of hierarchy. I think to an extent, what Maududi had, had put forward um, through looking they, they look through hermeneutics without hegemony. Um, and uh, what is significant is that they they still uphold the idea of family. And so family is, is very, is, is, I think, particularly key. Um, also because most of the, the most, the, you know, the, the predominant um, voices that we hear from Muslim uh, feminists are, are heterosexual. So they, they, they're, 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 they still want to honor the, the position and the place of family. Now, could you tell us um, some of the her- hermeneutical strategies that they're using in their reading of the Quran? How do they how do they think about it? Well, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the very core of this is, is is that the Quran is a text, and and text can be read in in multiple forms. And so, part of my uh, project is to say, look, uh, if we look at the the Quran and we accept. Uh, that you know the billion or so Muslims globally accept this text as divine, then every individual has a right to read that text in whatever way they want, and there can be multiple ways of reading the the text so for example, on passages of the Quran which are which uh, you know at a, at, a, at a literal level can be seen as as uh, uh, you know uh, difficult uh, for example, the passage of the Quran which um, can has been you know presented as the, the passage that that uh, allows men to beat their wives. How many different ways can you read that passage, that part of the Quran? Uh, how do you put that into effect? What does that do to the way in which Maududi looks to the Quran? What does that do to the way in which Muslim feminists look towards the Quran? So I'm I'm really interested in exploring the the multi-form ways in which the the Quran can be read and what are the outgrowths from that form of understanding. Now, uh, one of the other critiques that uh, many of these uh, authors that you're looking at. Um, Put forth is that when they return to the Quran, they find that the uh, rigid constructions of of gender that that have been out there um, are not necessarily read in the Quran itself, uh, which leads that leads them to argue that it's within uh, the interpretive tradition, uh, especially how it's applied through Islamic law. So, can can you talk a little bit about how? Uh, gender constructions get constructed through Islamic law. Uh, well, I uh, my theory on this is that the the Quran is is quite a fantastic text because it is not a legal text, and scripture uh, by its very nature is full of stories, and stories can be read in a variety of different ways. And that's why I think uh, religions and, and, and scripture 
continues to play a very significant role in the life of a believer and the, and the life uh, uh, of um, society at large. Um, so the, the text is a text. It can be interpreted in, in, a, in a variety of ways. The way I present the Quran is I, I say that the Quran is perfectly ambiguous. I think that the Quran as a text um, uh, is, 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 is superbly dysfunctional. It allows, because it is a thinking text, the Quran has to breathe the life and the soul and the belief and faith into an individual, not through rote uh, reading and just uh, repetition, but through thinking and through pondering. And that is key to the way in which the text is read at the time of its revelation, at the time that it's understood now, I think that the Islamic, uh, this was mind-boggling to Islamic jurists who thought, well, this is opening up a huge can of worms. What do we do with a text that, that goes from one place to another? It contradicts itself. And so the Islamic uh, legal system tried to clarify that ambiguous nature. But I think... At a, at a, again, at a fantastic level, that trying to to make uh, to resolve or to to shape in a in an orderly way is not godly. So the text, the messiness of the text, the dysfunction, uh, the, the dysfunctionality of the text is something that I think is 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 intrinsic and key. To, to what, the, what the, the, the Quran is trying to do for, for, for people who think, for people who, who reflect on that text. And the Islamic jurists uh, try to create order in exactly the same way that Maududi was trying to create order and trying to, create, uh, trying to imagine what an Islamic state was. Now, the easy way out is, um, nowadays we love to throw out... Um, you know, discussions and labels of this is progressive and this is liberal and this is conservative. Well, you know, if you want to be faithful and you want to be true to the nature of the text, you have to be able to accept that those Judas who felt that they were being faithful to the text, they have a right to say what they have to say. And so does Maududi and so do the Muslim feminists. So that is, that is, you know, in the early parts of my book, what I'm trying to open up the debate about is that look how fantastic this idea uh, about God and, and Islam and, and, and all of this is when it comes to, to really viewing the multiple ways in which Muslim men and women have understood their religion and understood their connection to God. So this idea, so it, 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 uh, I think inadvertently, I challenge this idea that people think that Islam needs a, re a reformation. Because then if you have a cardboard cutout understanding of Islam in the same way that you have of men and women, you will have a cardboard cutout understanding of what it means to have faith. So reformation, reform is happening and has happened from the very beginning through individual experiences about the relationship that men and women have with God. No two Muslims are alike in exactly the same way that there are no two Jews and two Christians who are alike, men or women. 
and 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 I am interested and, and intrigued to open up the the gates to say how how is how is this happening and and really beginning to appreciate that whether you agree to diversity or not you have to accept that there are individual beings who challenge so many things that we all stand for yeah and this uh this comes out in your own uh reading of the Quran um i i guess inspired by these figures and their kind of uh, reading of the text, you then look to see, well, how is masculinity constructed in the Quran itself? And uh, you present in the chapter uh, multiple ways. You find that there isn't a single narrative about masculinity. Yes. So uh, could you walk us through uh, some of these figures? You you look at Adam, you look at Joseph, you look at Muhammad, you look at Jesus. Each, each of these figures present us a different uh, ideal of what masculinity uh, masculinity is. Yeah. Um, so could could you give us maybe perhaps a little background to some listeners might not be familiar with the way, uh, you know, people like Adam or people like Jesus are presented in the Quran. And, and what do these uh, each of these figures tell us about masculinity? So, you know, the, 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 the oft repeated answer to many questions that you would pose to a Muslim. Why do you not drink alcohol? Why do Muslims wear the hijab? And, you know, many of them will turn to you in the Quran. So. If the Qur'an is uh, an essential and pivotal point in the lives of Muslims, then you would expect, you know, a, a simple answer. But as I've already said to you, I don't think the Qur'an is trying to give simple answers. So you, so you can pose the question to the Qur'an. What, what is the ideal Islamic masculinity? And I think that the Qur'an supports the work of sociologists and anthropologists who are telling us that there's no one way to be masculine, to be male. And I think that the Qur'an upholds that. And we see that through the life and times of these prophets. So we see within Adam, what was the role of Adam? How, what was the relationship that he had with Eve? Were they even married? Do they uphold this idea of marriage? Does the Qur'an uphold an idea of a, of a, of a very secure uh, and um, locked understanding of what it means to, to have a family? Um, I don't think so, because the Qur'an is full of uh, uh, dysfunctional families. You have Adam and Eve who, who you know, their, their primary and central command from God was not to get married and have children and, you know, give them a good education and all of that. It was submit to this God. And that submission was the central and crucial point of what they had to do. All else was secondary. Now, as I said to you, there, there are many ways in which you can read stories. So if you are, and we have to accept that we live in still times which are deeply patriarchal, deeply male-centered, deeply heteronormative. So somebody who wants to uphold all of that, and remember, most men, if not all men, don't want to rock the status quo. They want to be the center of the universe. To, to a certain level. So they will read from the story of Adam and Eve, and very, they will read out of that uh, 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 how to support and sustain patriarchy. And I think this is very well um, articulated in the work of Asma Barlas when she unreads uh, uh, patriarchy in the Quran. Then we look at Joseph. We don't, we don't know if, uh, if Joseph ever got married, but we do know that there was uh, uh, some sexual shenanigans going on with uh, his... Um, uh, adopted family 
what does that tell us? What does that tell us about what it meant to, when we look at particularly at, the, uh, at what masculinity meant? Uh, in the life of Joseph, when we look at the, the, the Prophet Muhammad, we see, uh, I mean, a whole, uh, the Prophet's life is extremely colorful. And he receives a lot of critique on this, on, on the way in which we, we look at the, the Prophet's life. He married multiple wives. He, the, 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 the critical point of how young uh, one of his wives uh, was, all of this pre- presents us with a lot of very challenging ideas of, of what it means to be Muslim and male. But again, even with the life of the Prophet Muhammad, we know that the central objective was submission and belief in that one God. Everything else was secondary. Then we move to the life of Jesus. Jesus is totally challenging the biological affairs. Who, who was uh, uh, Jesus' father? What role did uh, his mother play? Um, did Jesus get married? Well, well, if these are central figures of the, uh, in, in the Quranic world, then what is, what is, what is God playing at in trying to challenge the readers of this text? And the challenge is uh, rooted to the centrality of God and the centrality of the way in which human beings, not just human beings, but the creation of angels, everything that God creates, submits to God. So in a sense, the central and key point is not often about gender or or sexuality. It is about what that being does. So this leads us on to questions and and, and further critique about, well, where are the female prophets in the Quran? Well, if you want to read male-only prophets from the Quran, you can do that. But we're also challenged uh, as, you know, uh, 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 Judists and and Islamic scholars in the past have told us, well, maybe Mary was um, a prophet. She received a communication with God. She was trying to uphold this idea of, of God's centrality and God's existence. Was why is Eve not a, a prophet? So, so this leads to all sorts of other discussions and debates. And male-only prophets, understood by men, does something to construct a particular form of Islamic masculinity. All of this is, is, is I think, going to be very crucial for us to, to look closely at in, in, in the, the difficult times that we are facing today. Now, uh, the second half of the book, you also challenge kind of the the heteronormativity of uh, of Islamic masculinities, um, and uh, one chapter you focus on this very very interesting figure, uh, Mirza Ghalib. Mm-hmm. Um, paint paint a picture for us. Who is this figure? He had a very fascinating life. Uh, very interesting thoughts. Can, can you give us some background on who this person is? So Mirza Ghalib uh, presents us with a very uh, hedonistic challenge um, in the face of uh, Maududi-esque forms of Islamic masculinity and femininity. Mirza Ghalib uh, was a, a, a Mughal uh, poet, uh, a drunk. Uh, he loved his alcohol and he loved his women. Uh, he was uh, ostracized from uh, mainstream Islamic society. Uh, he was very public about uh, his challenge to, to those particular norms and ways. He he would be known to wander the the, the streets with um, 
crates of booze and uh, he would be very open about that he uh, it's also said that most of his his poetry was written whilst he was uh, completely uh, uh, pissed and drunk and um, so he 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 but but what what i find very interesting about mirza ghalib is that he was deeply invested in the god question his poetry is infused with the same forms of submission that we see in in the way in which maududi presents us islamic masculinity and is exactly the same way that you see um within the the quranic narrative and so mirza ghalib um presents us with a with a, a a form of islamic masculinity which is very challenging to a very mainstream very rigid approach to what it means to be islamic and what it means to be to be muslim um he he also uh, constructed his masculinity through interactions with others uh, particularly those who felt that he was not upholding a uh, a, a a good form of um islam and he 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 challenged that um and 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 dismissed it because he he continually reminded us that um spirituality and faith is a a personal matter and it cannot be typified and replicated and i think that that was a um that is that is very uh, quranic um and islamic and so um i wanted to present uh, a polar opposite to maududi um um with exactly the same label of of uh, of saying that they are islamic and if they're not islamic why are they not islamic yeah uh i really enjoyed this chapter and i think uh mirza galib is one of your your favorite people so i want to uh, push you a little bit farther here uh one of the things that um you kind of highlight in the chapter is um unlike people like like or even uh like some of these uh female muslim thinkers that you're talking about uh his masculinity was not based in relations of marriage uh you talk about his marriage being um you know not very successful it's not based on family you talk about that he he doesn't have any children uh that live on and so his uh much of his ideas about masculinity were constructed in relation to other men which i think is unique and you talk about uh how it's constructed in relation to his military family and ideas he has about his own fitting into that that context um and then also uh in relation to other poets and uh i this 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 seemed like a wonderful scene and i'm wondering if you could tell us about how how these kind of interactions especially uh in relation to his poetry which he is so well known for uh how how was this kind of playing out in his life well i um i i'm not entirely convinced that his mar- his marriage was uh not successful i think he he was uh, deeply in love with his wife um and uh, but he 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 loved he loved a lot of women and um you know this the, the, you know this idea of very rigid, rigid uh, gender roles is challenged by mirza galib because mirza galib gives us an an a picture of a a a man who was very committed i think in his own way to what it meant to be muslim 
he was committed to his wife. His wife, you know, uh, ostracized him at times from his own house because she would separate the dishware because she felt that, oh, you know, you're a drunk and, and I, I'm fasting and I'm praying. And, you know, and, and it was very interesting. That, that, but I think there was, there was a playful element to it. She, she loved him dearly throughout all of this. And he would frequent courtesans. Um, I mean, they, they, he, he also, you know, made statements uh, alluding to, to same sex and, 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 and not, not dismissing it, but uh, to, an, uh, to an extent accepting it. And it give, gives you an idea of what was actually happening in society. So to be Muslim and male, but, uh, you know, in, in, in Mughal society was, was rather fluid, was, you know, you could have a wife at home, you could frequent a courtesan, and maybe you could have a, a boy at the side. This, in their view, was, was, was very Islamic and very faithful. But again, I think Mirza Ghalib, Mirza Ghalib's challenge is, is to, to the very core idea of family, that, the, you know, the family... I think it was uh, Amina Wadud who said this. The family becomes the point, uh, you know, can become the unit that upholds um, uh, patriarchy and, and harm, or it can, it has the potential to do something better than that. And in no way am I saying that let's do away with family, but what I'm saying is that I think within the umbrella of saying what is Islamic, there is room for maneuver, there is room, there is scope for uh, opening up that debate that we see when we bring into the discussion the likes of those who have been dismissed from the table, such as uh, Mirza Ghalib. And Mirza Ghalib's world was a very interesting world. He lived a very full life. His poetry is, I, I would say, deeply theological, and he is very much invested in 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 trying to to present uh, what he understands as as submission to to God. You you wrap up the book with another kind of uh, subversive sphere, I guess we can call it, um, focused on different aspects of of Sufism, both kind of in in thought and then in practice. Um, and one one of the themes you touch upon is how ideas of masculinity and femininity are. Uh, kind of play out in Sufi thought and then how that gets applied within live practice. So issues of, of celibacy, what's the role of sex or marriage, uh, what are perceptions of women? Um, and you, you touch upon this long history, but can you kind of give us uh, some of the highlights of, of how masculinity and femininity are thought about uh, more broadly from a Sufi perspective? Well, you know, I, I, I was... Um, I've always been intrigued by Sufism, um, especially given our current uh, state of affairs, where uh, sometimes we fall trapped to this idea that that Sufism can become the salvation to everything that is ugly within Islam. Um, I think a more critical uh, study of of Sufism kind of um, unveils um, that that uh, there is an element of um, same old, same old there. Uh, in terms of the way in which gender and sexuality is constructed because it had to interact with society. And society at large 
uh, was was still was still very rigid and 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 still wanted some particular form. So I think at the very core, the philosophy and the idea of Sufism is again fantastic, fab, absolutely fabulous. You know, uh, uh, of the individual relationship with God, and uh, you know, wrap yourself in wool and wander around like a dervish or whirl around. Fab, f- great. But the, the, the crux and the core of the matter is that, they, uh, uh, you know, not everybody can live a life like that. And, and so, so, so you still have, you know, uh, elements within Sufism that were trying to locate itself in, in, a, in a society which was, you know, by and large um, heteronormative and um, very particular about what, what gender was. So this idea of, of celibacy, you know, uh, celibate Sufis or, or or Sufis who got married and were still wanting to uphold this idea of family. And it was actually my PhD supervisor, uh, Lloyd Ridgen, who gave me a lot to think about. I mean, you know, uh, I think we underestimate at times um, how much uh, PhD supervisors push you to think um, and my my PhD supervisor certainly made me think rather than help you know uh, uh, get, take me to a to a particular conclusion and that I will I feel quite blessed by that and and one one road he took me on was looking at the Sufi calendars and the calendars are fantastic they're 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 great they they really challenge society they are gender bending they are men dressed up as women some of them will categorize themselves as uh, lovers of everybody, which is a, a nice way of saying that they're homosexual in a society that's not really going to accept them, them uh, uh, under that label. Or, some, or, or a lot of them would say we're, we're heterosexual. They wear women's clothing. They're, uh, I mean, they're, they're high as a kite. They're, they're smoking all sorts of intoxicants and, and drinking all sorts of things, dancing at the, at the shrines of Sufi saints and still saying the challenge to society is they're saying we are still submitted to God, you know, uh, take that. And it's great because, again, it sh- it's, it, you know, it's a challenge to, to any Muslim man or woman who wants to create an ideal to say, look, this is my Islam and my Islam doesn't have to be your Islam. So this is why I think the, the chapter on, uh, on Sufism had to be there uh, to, to give the, to, to continue the the discussion on on what it means uh, to to be male and within that chapter I I also uh, open up the discussion on the connection between Islamic masculinity femininity and sexuality because um, I, I mean in in the in I, I've taken you on this journey of my book and if if at the very core of what I'm saying is that it's an individual act an individual participation and presentation. Um, uh, of of how an individual lives their life as male or female, then really the question of sexuality just drops at the wayside, because s- s- the, the the core idea is about how men and women submit to God and how that makes them do good, what how they uphold goodness and what they do in society, and by looking at that very core idea, it's a huge challenge to those who want to uphold particular forms of sexuality. Because as we've seen from the Quranic model, we don't know if some of these prophets even had sex, who they had sex with, 
who they, whether they had children. So that opens up a, a, a much needed discussion, which I think is um, is not not so so interesting for me as an academic when it comes to you know. Um, we should be open to ideas of sexuality and, um, you know, we have to look at LGBTQ issues and this is just a yes or a no. I'm interested in trying to develop an idea uh, uh, that, that interacts with these questions uh, from a masculinity and a, and a femininity point of view. And I think um, I think we can we can open up and, and, and have a, a very uh, fruitful uh, discussion if you want. So, so the core point, another core point that I that I present is that uh, if you place Maududi and Mirza Ghalib and these Kalandari Malangs all together, you can, it's very difficult to say one is better than the other because they're all Islamic. They're all saying that they're Islamic. They're all saying that they're Muslim and they're all submitted to God. That, I think, is sorely needed today uh, to, to appreciate uh, uh, amongst Muslims to have the intra-discussion and then to have the inter-discussion. And I think, I hope, this will affect the way in which um, we live uh, at, 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 a very, at a very difficult moment in history. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a great way to, to wrap up uh, the discussion of the book. If I can just uh, push you a little further, though, since this, mm. you really, uh, I think you even said yourself, you're, you were trying to open the door on this idea of Islamic masculinities. Where, where do you think... Uh, people can go within this field? What kind of things do you think need to be done uh, going, going forward? Well, you know, it's... Uh, or what, what's your wish list? What would you like to see done? The first part of what I want to see done is I want people to at least acknowledge the debate. There's a secondary phase to this, which is uh, in the hands of those who want to take up the activist challenge. And this is a, one of the reasons why I think many activists or those... Uh, scholars um, of Islam who who want to who who want to to to, to be scholar activists uh, push are, are maybe a little upset with me. They say, "Well, can you tell us? You've done all this this great work, but can you tell us? Can you please tell us that Maududi's model is a bad model?" Well, I'm sorry, I I can't do that <laughs> because as a, as a scholar, as an academic, that's not my role. So my you know my wish list would be for us to at least acknowledge that that you can have this this great tapestry you know um or tartan I just thought I'd throw that one in there <laughs> of all these these wonderful forms of masculinity and femininity and accept them now the the problem is that accepting diversity at this core level will be very confusing for people because you know, you, you, I'm, I'm pushing academics and Muslims and non-Muslims to accept such diversity that I think will be very difficult for people who want to create an order. Now, that, that order, in the way that Maududi wanted to create a rigid order or an order which, you know, far lefties or progressives want to create their uh, uh, political way of, of order, I don't think I help any of them. But I, I, and I think this is what frustrates them. But as an academic, I feel that my role is to open up the discussion and God knows where, where this will lead. But it's exciting because, you know, just the other day I was invited to 
Emory University, where I was asked to speak about the, the, the intersection of my book with public health and how, you know, uh, public health um, officials and, um, uh, from the West can go into Islamic societies and how they negotiate their presence. And I sat there and I, I said, look, I don't, maybe we'll not have all the answers to, to what you're thinking, but I'm just amazed that, that I have been able to get you to think about, you know, how this type of discussion can, can really empower us. And I hope at the very core, it also builds a bridge. I'm a bridge builder at the very core. And I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we face today is this cementing, the continual cementing of an Islam versus West. And I think that if we begin to appreciate this complexity of Islamic masculinities and femininities and really beginning to appreciate that there's not that much different, different between all of these varieties of men and women who are Muslim and those who are not, I think uh, that can also help to, to bridge that divide. Mm. Well, this, this book is certainly a great start for that. Um, Amon, before I let you go, can you, can you tell us what kind of things you, you have uh, going on now? What, what kind of projects you're working on? I, uh, I have uh, begun uh, researching for my second book, uh, which will look at Islam in Pakistan. And um, I, I'm going to leave that rather uh, general and vague because um, I'm at the very early stages of trying to to make sense of that. And I'm, I'm really interested in uh, looking particularly at the, the media and the arts and the entertainment world in Pakistan and really following the, the, the trajectory of, of the development of that in Pakistan in, in the contemporary, uh, in contemporary times. So I'm, 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 I'm hoping to, to get to Pakistan at, at some point, um, um, to, to, to conduct some further research on that. I'm still um, uh, invested in, in looking at British Muslim studies. I'm hoping to edit uh, a book uh, which brings together uh, scholarship on uh, the history and the contemporary debates surrounding uh, Islam in, in Britain. Um, I'm also hoping to edit another book um, that will be a book on Islamic masculinities between uh, theology and law. So if anybody is interested and wants to participate in this discussion on, on British Muslim studies or Islamic masculinities, please, um, please get in, in touch with me. Um, I think we live we at a very interesting uh, uh, period of, of time where um, uh, Islamic studies is, is thriving and um, uh, we need to, we need to um, uh, help in securing and cementing uh, the 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 way for more critical uh, scholarship of Islam and uh, opening up the debate and opening up the the critique and I think that will be be uh, very helpful to us and to the academy at large. Great. Well, good luck, Aman, and thank you very much for for making the time to talk about your your wonderful book today. Appreciate thank it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Manala Dasandi about his great new book. The Crisis of Islamic Masculinities, published with Bloomsbury Press in 2014.